You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode number 233, and I'm Nathan Gilmore. I'm an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined on the line today by Dr. David Grubbs. He's an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. David, how are things? Pretty well, sir. How about you? I am hanging in. Today's been a grueling day. I'll probably gripe about it as the show rolls on, so I won't bore listeners now. I'll bore them later. Uh, Also on the line and never boring is Dr. Michael Farmer. He is an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Michael, how are you? I see you've never been in my freshman comp class. How's that now? Oh, you said I'm never boring. Oh, okay. (laughs) Very good, very good. Well, guys, uh, what is going on on the Christian Humanist Radio Network? New episode of Before They Were Live. Josh and I watch Fun and Fancy Free, yet another package movie from the middle of the 1940s. But a pretty good one. What would our listeners know from that one, if anything? Mickey and the Beanstalk. What? Mickey and the Beanstalk? Yay. They used to play that at a Noble Roman's Pizza when I was growing up as a silent film. Cool. (laughs) It's probably better as a silent film because uh, that, that part of the movie is narrated by famed ventriloquist Edgar Bergen and his puppets, Charlie McCarthy and Mortimer Snurd. Huh. I'm kind of glad I don't know what that sounds like. Wow. Well, City of Man is continuing its exploration of the effect of Trump on all things um, with their latest episode, Liberalism in the Age of Trump, following up on conservatism. So that's interesting stuff. I had a chance to listen to that one. It's a good episode. Another good episode is from the Christian Feminist Podcast. They've got one up on Leia Organa uh, on her now, what, five-film career. Uh, and really, I mean, have some interesting insights about that long arc of that character. So definitely tune in and listen to that one. How was your comment? And then I posted one from Sectarian Review this morning, but I've already forgotten what it was about. Some Danny Anderson conspiracy thing. Must be. (laughs) Like all of them. Uh, How was your conversation with Tom Wright? It was good. It was good. This one was uh, a lot looser than the ones that I've done before. It might be because I had taught for like four and a half hours right before I got online. Uh, But, you know, it was a fun conversation on Paul, a biography. So I encourage listeners to have a listen to that as well. And I think that pretty much takes care of the network, does it not? Pretty much. Well, today's conversation uh, is going to be about a book that uh, Michael and David have graciously agreed to read along with me. Uh, George Lindbeck is a Yale Divinity School theologian, 
did a lot of his important work in the second half of the 20th century. And his book, The Nature of Doctrine, was a great influence on me and in turn on my seminary mentor, uh, Fred Norris, on Stanley Hauerwas, who, of course, is a big influence on me. Uh, George Lindbeck died earlier this year, so I asked Michael and David if we could have a conversation about it. One of them, I forget who, suggested that we make a three-parter out of it. And now that I'm plowing through the book, I'm realizing the wisdom of whoever it is suggested that, because this is a dense book, is it not, gentlemen? Indeed. Yes. <laughs> so I want to dive right in. Uh, this is a book with a plain vanilla title, The Nature of Doctrine. And it stands as uh, George Lindbeck's contribution to the 20th century ecumenical movement. So, David, for listeners not as familiar with recent church history, what was the ecumenical movement after, and how does this book's introduction situate itself relative to that ecumenical movement's larger conversation? Well, I don't know a lot about church history in the modern era, so... I, I turned to my bookshelf and uh, The Story of Christianity by Justo Gonzalez, Volume 2, which takes it up to the present day, which, well, when the one that I'm reading was printed, it was 1985. So <laughs> there's that. Uh, his account, uh, and this is at the very end of the book, uh, his account of the ecumenical movement in the early 20th century begins with different churches cooperating, collaborating together in international missionary efforts. And as part of uh, enabling that relationship, they had intentionally set aside uh, conversations about what they called faith and order. That is, uh, their doctrinal distinctives and their distinctives in church order. Uh, how um, how the, the ordinances or sacraments of the church were performed, how church, uh, the churches were governed, it, the, its offices, and so forth. Uh, however, as, uh, as the, the 20th century was progressing, more and more uh, Christians, uh, in, in, in the West particularly, felt the need to actually have those conversations between churches about the matters of faith and order. And so um, beginning uh, in the, the 1920s, the first World Conference on Faith and Order uh, got together in Switzerland, in, which included, uh, uh, it says, uh, 108 churches, Protestant, Orthodox, and Old Catholic, that is a uh, a group that had split from Roman Catholicism at the time of the promulgation of papal infallibility. So this group, uh, this large group of churches from uh, around the world, but primarily uh, in, in the West, were beginning this doctrinal conversation. Uh, also because of their connection, because they'd spun off from the missionary, the World Missionary Conference, um, they also had contact with these younger churches um, that had that had been planted in different regions of the world as a res as a result of the missionary movement. Uh, there was also a growing uh, what they called life and work movement, um, beginning a little after this time, which is churches seeking cooperation on uh, matters of 
uh, especially social dealing with social ills, um, dealing with uh, moral problems at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, they were uh, concerned with things like economics and, and war and things of that nature. So um, the, these conversations are getting started uh, pretty early on, and these lead to the formation of the World Council of Churches. So uh, a, a big part of this effort is not necessarily uh, aimed at getting everyone agreeing on life and work and agreeing on faith and order, but at least in conversation about what they have, uh, what they have in common and what they don't. So those are um, some of the first half of the 20th century and then coming into the second half after World War II with the World Council of Churches. Um, attempts attempts at kind of worldwide ecumenism. Um, also, uh, in in that time and continuing up through the rest of the twentieth century, um, uh, efforts, especially especially in Europe, but also uh, in the United States and Canada, um, to form um, united. Christian churches in countries where they didn't already have a kind of official national church. Um, there was a movement towards uh, church unification. Um, also conversations um, between uh, the Anglican Communion and um, the Roman Catholic Church, or between the Anglican Communion and the Evangelical Lutheran Church, or um, Lutheran churches in Europe with uh, the Roman Church, or the Roman Church with the various forms of Eastern and Ori Oriental Orthodoxy. Um, so th those kinds of conversations as well, often um, attempting to find commonality that would allow um, communion, like literal communion, participating together in the sacrament of communion. Uh, also resistance to that in uh, pretty much every tradition as well. Um, uh, Missouri Synod Lutherans who um, in general did not uh, sign on with their Evangelical Lutheran Church of America brothers in those kinds of talks. Um, conservative Evangelicals, fundamentalists in general not liking it. But even within Evangelicalism um, uh, in the late 20th century, 1990s, uh, you have documents like Evangelicals and Catholics together, um, an attempt to um, sort of sort out a, a, a document on what doctrines even uh, American Evangelicals, or actually really international um, Evangelicals, because uh, there, were, there was international representation in that, um, uh, agreeing with Catholics. And then uh, in the early 2000s, um, uh, a, a document called the the Manhattan Declaration, which is um, kind of like that life and work um, collaboration in the in in the early 1900s, except it's um, more culturally conservative evangelicals and more culturally conservative Catholics um, uh, declaring that they need to work together on on issues uh, like abortion and things like that. So, um, one of the issues that uh, Lindbeck has with this is that it's primarily been focused 
um, in matters of doctrine, which he says uh, it can be very difficult to find uh, to find unity on matters of doctrine without either without um, simply dis discarding um, positions or ignoring the law of con non contradiction between you know opposed propositions. Uh, it, it seems like a very difficult thing to do. Um, and then another one of the difficulties uh, is the focus uh, in, in some of this ecumenical um, effort um, to, to try to bring things into more of the practical and experiential realm, which um, those who, who like their religions propositional um, are, are suspect of in general anyway. So um, this, this, is, uh, this is a conversation that Lindbeck uh, was interested in moving forward, um, but he didn't think it had the tools to properly do that. And so this, this book is an effort to, to try to reinvigorate that conversation by giving it um, a different framework within, the work, uh, within to make sense of what it was doing. Very good. Um, have either of you guys uh, been parts of churches that were involved in any of these kind of ecumenical endeavors? Uh, I, I personally have read about them, but the churches I've been involved with, generally speaking, uh, some have done, you know, some local cooperative kinds of work. But as far as the, you know, organic unity movements that, you know, are characteristic of that ecumenical movement, I've never actually been in them. Me neither. Nor, nor I. Um, I've tended to be part of churches that uh, were sort of suspicious of that movement of that move um, right off the bat. Of course, also through my lifetime, I tended to be at the sorts of churches where you could get chick tracks about why you don't need to succumb to papism. So um, that, <laughs> that might explain it. Fair enough. And uh, Danny Anderson has an episode on that one. Well. <laughs> Well, Michael, I mean, in this book's uh, preliminary descriptive work, uh, Lindbeck describes two broad categories of responses to this Christian diversity and religious pluralism more generally. And those are the cognitive or the propositional approach and then the expressivist or er experiential approach. David's kind of mentioned both of those in his uh, background material there. Yeah, but... thanks for scooping me. <laughs> As uh, Lindbeck lays things out, what kinds of things does each ap approach entail, and what are the limitations that concern Lindbeck as he moves on with his own response to the pair? Well, I think you can probably think of these as conservative versus liberal approaches. The cognitive, propositional, conservative view sees religious utterances as making truth claims that have some degree of verifiability to them. So... For example, when the Apostles' Creed says that Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, the cognitivist thinks that if we went back in time, we could theoretically demonstrate that he had no DNA from Joseph. Presumably, that doesn't mean that absolutely every theological statement is cognitive, but most of them are, and the important ones are. So religious disputes for the cognitivist are real and meaningful, uh, if a Catholic person says the Eucharist is flesh and blood and the Baptist says it's just a symbol, there is no way to bridge that gap without one side capitulating to the other. 
Lindbeck thinks, uh, by the way, that it's very difficult to be uh, an educated cognitivist in the modern era. He wrote, uh, he writes, uh, this is page 21 of my edition, perhaps only those among whom the sex chiefly recruit, whom combine unusual insecurity with naivete, can easily manage to do this, which, aside from being a torturous <laughs> sentence grammatically, I, I uh, imagined David getting very angry at it. I was in a public restaurant, which is why I didn't throw the book. Nice. So The experiential so yeah. or expressivist view sees religious utterances as symbolic expressions of precognitive religious experiences. So the experience is primary, which is why he calls it the experiential. So to return to that example, when the Apostles' Creed says that Christ is born of the Virgin Mary, the expressivist thinks that may just mean that the writers of the creed were trying to express the inherent godlikeness in Christ rather than making any kind of historical or scientific claim. Again, presumably this doesn't mean that there are absolutely no truth claims in religion, but most of what the cognitivist thinks of as truth statement is really just an expression of interior life. Uh, many or most expressivists believe that all religions express the same kind of religious experience, which is also expressed by some non-religious beliefs. So, for the expressivist, religious disputes are either not real or they're not meaningful. Uh, again, the Catholic says the Eucharist is flesh and blood. The Baptist says it's just a symbol. Both of them are just trying to communicate a primary experience of absolute dependency or whatever. Uh, he also mentions there are some attempts at blending these two styles. He mentions Karl Rahner in particular. He doesn't go into a lot of detail, but he does say that attempts like that are generally ultimately going to involve an appeal to church authority, which makes me think that it's something closer to the cognitive propositional view uh, than to the the more squishy experiential expressive view. But what do I know? What have I left out? I think he pretty much, I mean, captured the two approaches that he's interested in. And yes, I mean, you know, he is uh, a university divinity school professor. So, I mean, he is going to speak dismissively of fundamentalism. Uh, I don't especially like that, but I mean, that that's kind of, ah, I don't know. I expected it, I suppose. So what you going to do? Honestly, when I was reading that, I just, I guess because I've read this book so many times, I didn't even notice it. I suppose I should have been reading more uh, sympathetically than I was. I wrote G's mm. in the margins. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in just a few pages later, he, he happens to mention um, uh, there are thinkers of great contemporary philosophical sophistication uh, who emphasize the cognitive, cognitive dimension of religion and for whom church doctrines are first of all truth claims about objective realities. Traditionalists of this kind are by no means ignorant of modernity and have often are often among its most effective critics. Any names, Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, and Malcolm Mugridge. So, you know, there's there, I mean, that's a little bit nicer than... Uh, the the naive the the insecure naifs who from from whom apparently these sects chiefly recruit, but still, that means it's, it's maybe less. the sentence is just so terribly written that he means the opposite of what he actually says. <laughs> He's a bad writer, Nathan. That's what I'm saying. 
Oh, I don't disagree. I mean, I, I don't pick up this book for the prose style by any means. He's not the worst writer I've ever read. Well, no. I mean, Derrida exists. <laughs> right. Nice. Um, one thing that I think um, would be uh, useful to say at this point is um, he's, he seems to want something more to happen out of this ecumenical conversation um, than just, well, everything's fine and there's not really any any borders at all, which seems to be the limits of the expressivist or experiential approach. Um, right. It doesn't seem to be able to rule anything out of bounds, and he seems to want to still to make those those sorts of moves. So... I also wonder the degree to which the expressivist experiential view is is still dominant in uh, progressive Christianity in the 21st century, because it, it seems very much like a mid-century liberal Christianity to me. I mean, Paul Tillich, for example, <laughs> I think fits that fits that position very squarely. So I, I did find myself wondering if uh, if contemporary progressives still hold these views. And the sense that I get is that some of them still do, but it's not nearly as dominant, Michael, like you were saying, as it might have been 70 years ago. Well, and I think he may mention this, that there's something um, ethnocentric about looking at Hindus and saying, well, really, you're just describing the same sort of experience I am. Really, we don't disagree about anything serious. I, I, I think I, I don't think that would go over as well today because it would look like a Westerner dismissing a non-Westerner. Right. I think that's about right. Well, anyway, David, uh, Lindbeck, you know, of course, proposes a cultural linguistic approach. This is kind of his signature uh, move in this book as his alternative. Um, and really, you know, once we describe that, we've pretty much got the core of this book. So... In Lindbeck's view, I mean, what does this cultural linguistic approach do and what does it offer that the other two don't? Well, one thing, uh, one thing that it does that the, that the others don't is uh, he, he sees it as a more, um, a more neutral, uh, simultaneously more analytic and more neutral than, than these other uh, these other ways of processing it or, or, or under understanding it, conceptualizing it are um, in, in this particular sense that uh, the, the cultural linguistic approach as opposed to the cognitivist approach, the cognitivist, cognitivist approach is going to look at um, all of these doctrinal declarations as logical propositions then to be analyzed and related to one another. Um, to see, you know, how these affirmations and negations sort out amongst themselves. Um, this cultural linguistic approach uh, is, in some sense, zooming higher above that, getting, getting out of the weeds, as it were, and asking what function do these sorts of declarations serve within the groups who affirm them. Um, so that he's uh, that so that this particular approach is 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 more interested in the work that these statements do than in the the specifics of the statements. 
um, something that the uh, the experiential or expressivist uh, group um, that 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 particular view does is it it, it he thinks doesn't uh, appro appropriately account for the uh, the interrelation of of the group's culture of the group's um, uh, kind of lived and encoded experience in uh, in shaping um, the ways that our experiences are felt or the ways that we express ourselves um, and this in this particular view uh, puts puts individuals and their experience within a within a greater context certainly something we're going to have to develop more as we go um, also and this is I, I wondered about this one, and I wondered how well this is aged. Um, and this is on page 25. He said uh, that one of the reasons for approaching this is because the cultural linguistic approach is dominating all of these other related disciplines. And he says, obviously, there are disadvantages in the growing isolation of the religiously interested study of religion from some of the most fruitful intellectual currents of the day. It tends to ghettoize theology and deprives it of the vitality that comes from association with the best in non-theological thinking. So um, another, another point that he raises at the end of this uh, first chapter is that uh, essentially it brings the it brings the conversation the the academic conversation about religion um, up to date so to speak uh, it gets it uh, it gets it into conversation with other disciplines in such a way that it can draw on their insights uh, in in its own work and I wonder I, I, I don't really I, I don't I can't answer this question um, uh, does that still seem to be uh, is, is this pretty much pervasive now has it has it caught up is it pervasive in theological studies or are these trends that he's talking about in other fields still going on well probably a little bit of both ah okay all right i mean first of all you know i'm not by any means a, a sociologist or you know in any of these other fields but uh i do definitely see his sort of historical situation there in the moment when, uh, you know, Francois Leotard is, you know, doing his, the postmodern condition in philosophy. And then, you know, Alistair McIntyre is, you know, turning moral philosophy in more, a, more of a particularist direction and, you know, Clifford Geertz over in anthropology and so on and so forth. So I, I definitely think that in his moment, uh, this idea that, you know, the, close reading model for for lack of a better term is going to be better than the single procrustean theory that chops off any bits that don't fit your two variable system uh and i think that's what he sees as the you know big drawback especially of the experiential expressivist model uh is that you know if you say that uh all of these religious experiences are simply you know differently decorated versions of the same core uh, then you are going in a very different direction from where Clifford Geertz is going saying that 
every kind of human community has its own internal logic and that, you know, when you try to offer one kind of system that accounts for all of them, you're going to miss important things. Uh, mm. Does that make some sense, Michael? It makes sense to me, yeah. So, you know, again, I, I, I would have to uh, defer to our listeners uh, and ask them, you know, I mean, in the fields that you all are familiar with and in the fields that you all work in, uh, is there still this strong sense of pluralism? Uh, you know, my own training, you know, influenced, um, you know, by, among other people, George Lindbeck, is to look for those very different internal logics when I look at, you know, other texts, when I'm dealing with literature, or comparative religion, or so on and so forth, rather than go for the single unified theory. Uh, but I don't know if that is, you know, just a holdover from my 90s postmodernism or whether that's something other people are doing too. I mean, David, I mean, you know, in, in your dabblings in other fields, I mean, what what sense do you get? The closest, uh, the closest comparison that I have to this, um, and this is, this is kind of front burner in my mind because of a class I'm teaching, uh, is Joseph Campbell's uh, idea of the monomyth that he develops in his Hero with a Thousand Faces. And one of the critiques that it has faced um, almost as soon as he presented it, and, and certainly um, in, in the rest of the 20th century and on, you know, on to now, is that, sure, if there is this kind of archetypal human journey that all of these different um, mythological and legendary narratives across cultures is telling, sure, if there, if there is this archetypal, archetypal schema, um, essentially what you've done is said that the important core of all of this stuff is this one outline so that all of the all of the things that make each of those cultures distinctive and each of their iterations of it distinctive sort of falls off it's it's um it's kind of like the uh the experiential um uh emotive expressive um way of way of talking about religion that that you know that Lindbeck is critiquing um, by finding this one common ephemeral core all the particular kind of falls off and becomes unimportant um, but as a you know as a literature professor um, I kind of don't want all of my great heroic stories to basically then become the same thing <laughs> um, uh, I, I feel the particular pull of the Homeric um, against the Beowulfian and even against the Virgilian. So, you know, I, I, I want to, you know, to do something that's closer to what Lindbeck is doing with religion when I look at um, Virgil's Roman epic versus Homer's Greek, Greek epic versus the Beowulf poet's um, Christian Anglo-Saxon epic. Um, so, you know, uh, I, and, and, you know, I, I'm still very parochial in terms of my academic reading, but, um, at least in my experience, this is, this is something that feels, uh, feels similar to some of my experience, I guess. Right. And again, this might be a function of my own background that's so, uh, Lindbeck inflected, uh, but I mean, I, I feel entirely comfortable talking about an ethical grammar 
of the Homeric world as different from the ethical grammar of the world of Beowulf. I mean, is that something that, uh, even if you wouldn't use that phrase, is that a phrase that would make sense to you, David? I think so. All right, fair enough. I I, I like that distinction, Nathan, and I know it's going to take us into the next question, but I'm going to go ahead and say something. There's a difference between the particular and the individual. Um, All right, well, I mean, now that that you're segueing us, I'll, I'll go ahead and let you. I mean, one of the things that Lynn Beck claims is that this cultural linguistic allows you to get away from individualism uh, when it comes to religion. Of course, you know, famously, uh, you know, the individual's sense of utter dependency is one of those, you know, uh, central tenets of what we think of as a liberal, you know, study of religion. Uh, but, you know, talk a little bit more, Michael. I mean, what does he offer as an alternative to that? Yeah, so the conservative cognitivist says that the individual weighs the evidence and decides to believe in the propositions required for faith. The liberal expressivist says that the individual has an experience of God and then couches it in more or less formal religious language. But the cultural linguist believes in something more like Foucault's notion of discourse. Foucault uh, says that there are things that you literally cannot think because of the discourse around you, the way other people are speaking, and of course the language itself that you're using. So this is on page 34 of the Lindbeck. Thus the linguistic cultural model is part of an outlook that stresses the degree to which human experience is shaped, molded, and in a sense constituted by cultural and linguistic forms. There are numberless thoughts we cannot think, sentiments we cannot have, and realities we cannot perceive unless we learn to use the appropriate symbol systems. So, just like there's no private language, there's no private religious experiences either, at least not private in the sense of scrutable only to the person having them. You're always having them using a particular set of signs and symbols, and and thus your religious experience will be communicable to other people who use those signs and symbols. All religious experiences occur within the broader context of some particular religious language. And that means that a person influenced by Christianity will have some version of Christian religious experience. And that's true even if they're not formally Christian. Even if they maybe never were formally Christian, if they grow up in an environment um, that uses the, that language, their, their religious experiences or lack of them will have a Christian accent to them. And I, I, I bring up the distinction between particular and individual because from the expressivist point of view, these experiences have now become more particular because they're no longer an expression of universal precognitive religious experience. So Homer is different from Virgil, but Homer and the Homeric poets all share certain ethical grammars, to use the the phrase you use, Nathan. They're all operating out of a particular tradition that's different from the the Roman tradition, but the people within the tradition have quite a bit in common that they don't have with people outside of the tradition. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, that makes a good deal of sense. And can even disagree within um, within the range of that. Um, I mean, I'm I'm thinking thinking back to our um, triptych our triptych on uh, the tragedians of Athens with uh, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, and the way each of them are 
saying very different kinds of things with their tragedy, but things which are um, mutually un mutually intelligible, even when they are um, in disagreement. Well, and I, I may take it even further. I'm not sure I believe this, but if if I followed Richard Rorty, um, maybe you can only have that sort of meaningful disagreement within the tradition, because otherwise you're not even speaking the same language. Hmm. And I would want to qualify that only by saying that historically, because these traditions are connected to each other in terms of linguistic and social patterns, that you're often part of the same language, even if you don't realize it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it would be very difficult to say that Catholics and Protestants speak an entirely different language. It's better to say they speak dialects of the same language, right? But Catholics and Hindus, I, I think, really do speak a different language. And, and a theological debate between those two, unless it was on first principles in some ways, you know, unless it was about the the structure of the grammar to begin with, I, I don't think it would be very fruitful. Which right. is probably remember, why we all hate the people who are closest to us. Right. <laughs> I remember reading an article in seminary, and I've, I've, I've looked for it a number of times and I can't find it now, but the uh, title of the essay was, uh, Can Buddhists... No. Will Buddhists Receive Salvation? And uh, the basic argument of it was written by a, a Jesuit priest... Uh, is that, you know, it's a little bit arrogant to assume that that's what a Buddhist would want in the first place. Right. Well, anyway, David, um, Lindbeck's, you know, main project in the second chapter, we're going to move from chapter one to chapter two, uh, is to invert the relationships between experience and religious symbols that characterize liberal philosophers of religion and start imagining what philosophical possibilities emerge when the system of symbols and narratives and vocabularies becomes the primary reality and the experience the secondary reality. So setting aside from the, the propositional mo model for a moment, we're going to return to that in future episodes, what's to be commended and what critiqued in this cultural linguistic account of religious experience? Well, one of the things that... I think works uh, works well in this, and uh, partly partly this has to do with um, just the the gradual introduction um, that I've that uh, I've had to these ideas from from various sources over the past few years to help me, um, I suppose, be more more attentive to to realities that were even at work in my own life, even though I had not you know thought of them necessarily in this way. Um, uh, instead of, as the expressivist model puts it, it begins with this individual experience, um, and then I, I imagine the way that it would work, it's, I have this experience of ultimate reality, and you have it, and you have it, and you have it, and I find the people who have had, who have, um, expressed that experience in more or less the same way, and, and we sort of, um, gather together and mutually affirm each other in, um, in our distinctive and individual experiences. Um, but that's not, that's not in fact how um, at least Christian, the Christian religion works as I, as, as I know it. Um, 
or I, I think Lindbeck is suggesting any religion. Um, the idea is that instead of it working from the inside out, um, there is in fact this existing this existing culture with its own uh, its own narrative, its own um, uh, well, this is page 35. It has a comprehensive scheme or story used to structure all dimensions of reality um, that is not primarily a set of propositions to be believed, but rather the medium in which one moves and a set of skills that one employs in living one's life so that um, by sort of living inside of this scheme and story um, in the ways that it shapes your um, your internal, your subjective experience, the actions it leads you to choose, um, the values it leads you to form, the priorities it leads you to make, um, the the shape of rituals and uh, other, you know, other kinds of traditional forms. Um, all of these things lead lead you to have experiences that are of a particular sort, um, instead of instead of the other way around. Um, I think that's pretty persuasive, um, among other things, because uh, people like James K. A. Smith um, have uh, have been influential on me through other people pointing in me pointing me in those kinds of directions. Um, Van Hooser's work, um, in which he talks about um, the operations of the church in terms of drama in terms of acting out story um, seems to fit uh, very well in, in this uh, conceptuality that Lindbeck is using, though I think with probably a, a slightly more cognitivist inflection than uh, Lindbeck's form right here. Um, I, I, think th I think that this is useful and helpful. Uh, ways that it can be critiqued um, and I'm assuming that we're going to get into this as we go through this book. Um, I'm wondering how Christianity starts in this in this conceptuality. Um, how how does a conversion from a religion that is as different from Christianity as Buddhism? Or as Hinduism, how do, how does conversion from uh, from from such a re a religion set of traditions and so forth um, to to the Christian religion happen? Um, because it did, and if uh, you know that that's a thing that happened in history, otherwise we wouldn't be here. And uh, if the grammar of of our religion as this cultural linguistic model sets it is so um, encompassing I don't know how conversion happens um, so that's something I'm, I'm going to be interested in seeing him uh, in, in seeing it how and if he approaches it um, I assume he must because yeah it's either chapter 4 <laughs> or 5 I forget which exactly but he does deal with the possibility and the 
structure of religious change. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see how that works because at, at, at the moment, um, I, I don't, I, I'm not seeing how to formulate that given the way he's laying this out here. Right, and it's interesting. I mean, one of the main critiques of the Lindbeck School, if I can call it that, uh, has been its incorrigibility. So in other words, uh, are there real uh, vehicles by which uh, a tradition of this sort can actually learn and change? Uh, and like I said, I mean, he doesn't uh, spend a whole lot of time developing it because he's mainly concerned with relationships within ecumenical gatherings in this book. Uh, but I think that these structures are there where you could actually narrate that if you wanted to. One other, and maybe this this is a a more parochial sort of critique, but he seems this this way of talking about um, religion. If you look among the the traditions within um, Protestant Christianity in particular, I, I won't speak to kind of the the other great great traditions in Christianity. Um, this seems to privilege um, what we would call the more the more liturgical or for lack of a better term high church forms of Protestantism in which ritual prayer um, that those kinds of things are, are, are a much more central part of um, the individual Christian's identity, the more low church Protestant movements, um, especially in the Baptistic uh, tradition, which which has very much been about um, Christians are are adult converts who profess particular things and believe particular things, and then on the flip side have had subjective experiences of a particular sort, a conversion. Um, this, th this, particular, uh, this particular way of, of, of explaining which parts of the religion are important and are doing the work seems to work better in some traditions of Protestantism than in others. And I wonder if that's not if that's not a bit of parochialism on his part. That's interesting. I, I, I don't have a direct answer to that, David, but I mean, I am struck that uh, writers who are in his tradition, like Stan Hauerwas, like Jamie Smith, uh, also tend to prefer that more liturgical form of the worship gathering. And I don't think that's coincidental. I think you're right. Okay. Well, Michael, uh, towards the end of chapter two, and, and again, listeners, I can't remember if I said it at the beginning or not, but we're going to talk about two chapters at a time during this trilogy. So uh, the second chapter is the last one we're going to talk about today. But towards the end of chapter two, Lindbeck borrows lines of thought from Thomas Kuhn, from Ludwig Wittgenstein, uh, and he discusses within both, I mean, the condition under which doctrines might change and the possibility of family resemblances, which is a very... Wittgensteinian phrase that might crop up within genuinely and radically different traditions. So in your view, I mean, what does this approach to the philosophy of religion gain that's worthwhile? And as with David, I mean, what does it give up uh, that makes a difference when it comes to historical changes in religion? So I am 
not very familiar with Wittgenstein, so I'm going to stick with Kuhn. Kuhn says that science works via paradigms, and a paradigm is just the set of thoughts and beliefs that currently best fits the evidence. The problem is that no paradigm is perfect. All have explanatory weaknesses. There's holes in their explanations. Once those weaknesses become unbearable in one paradigm, a new paradigm develops that better incorporates the new evidence. And eventually, a critical mass of relevant scientists jump from one paradigm to the other. And that's, that's how things change in science. That's how you go from believing in a Newtonian universe to an Einsteinian universe for example. As applied to religion, um, I'm going to use an example. Medieval Catholicism explained an awful lot about the world, but like all paradigms, it had some gaps. Luther can't live with those gaps, and he creates a new paradigm that doesn't have those, even though it has other gaps. I don't want to make it sound like his system was perfect in the medieval Catholic. No, you're moving from one set of problems to another set of problems. Critical mass also has obviously not jumped from Catholicism to Lutheranism. Uh, so whereas scientists don't believe in phlogiston anymore, many people are still Catholic. So that's another reason that analogy is not perfect. But one mm -hmm. thing I like about it is it makes it clear that this is not a matter of progress because no paradigm is perfectly explanatory. You're always sacrificing things uh, when you move from one to another. So... It means that, on the one hand, Christian history can't look like an unbroken progression toward perfect theology, uh, the way some liberals would suggest. I'm thinking, in particular, of that incredibly aggravating passage near the end of A New Kind of Christianity, where uh, McLaren lays out his perfect world. Well, we're not moving toward that, because you're always going to be exchanging one paradigm for the other. But on the other hand... You're also not looking like some sort of great falling off whenever you think that happens. Maybe you think that happens at the Protestant Reformation or in 1066 or uh, the, the birth of liberalism in the mid-19th century. You're not getting that either. Each paradigm has to be examined on its own terms and then held onto relatively loosely. But that, by the way, is not the same thing as saying that the doctrines have to be held on to relatively loosely because the doctrines are part of the data that the various paradigms explain. Um, so you can't say, well, Christ's uh, divinity doesn't matter. Uh, I, I shouldn't hold on to that uh, very strongly. But you might say that my understanding of Christ's divinity may change uh, as I jump from one paradigm to another. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make a good a deal of sense to me. I mean, you know, to, to think of, you know, some more examples within the history of theology, you know, uh, this is why in in Lindbeck's account, and, you know, I'm, I'm speaking as, you know, again, the disciple of Lindbeck in this trio, uh, this is why we can talk intelligibly about uh, Christian theology before Anselm and after Anselm as variations on theology. The doctrines, as he would lay them out, uh, are the narratives and vocabularies of the cross and the resurrection and of the forgiveness of sins and so on and so forth. The theology he would regard as a second-order explanation of those primary data so that you can have genuine disagreement. Uh, and in fact, you know, it can remain very important to get that second-order discourse right, but you can still narrate it as a disagreement within an intelligibly Christian tradition 
Whereas, you know, to go to, to an example that Michael talked about earlier, uh, when you're talking about, you know, the spiritual problems that something like the Bhagavad Gita is trying to solve and the spiritual problems that something like the, you know, city of God is trying to solve, they are really answering different questions. It's not that they are posed with, you know, it's not that they confront the same experience and they're just putting different decoration on them, but the internal grammar of each differs substantially enough that, you know, you really are talking about two di very different things, even if you want to put that, you know, 17th century term religion on both of them. Um, David, I mean, what, what else would you add? I mean, have you read any Wittgenstein? <laughs> nope. Um, one thing though, as, as, as I'm listening to you explain it, Michael, um, un, unpack it, um, and you use the, you use the term development of, uh, development of doctrine, the, you know, the, uh, John Henry Newman phrase, um, which was not intended to have, to, to be a kind of statement about how, um, just hanging with the dialect, uh, the dialectic over the generations means everything gets awesome. Um, but was a statement about how uh, the the agency of the Spirit of Christ works through the institutions Christ established to lead Christ's people um, to. Uh, a further and deeper and higher understanding and obedience um, of Christ's word. And I keep saying Christ because one of the things that I wonder, and, I, and I'm really interested to see how this is developed, because just in these few chapters, I find a lot that's attractive about this system, but it seems like a very, very closed system. And I'm wondering how a God who is a communicative agent with his own agency and his own agenda um, gets up into this mess and can make things change actually for the better, um, which I think is something that as a Christian I'm kind of bound to say um, as, I, as I shift from um, what I call the Old Testament to what I call the New Testament. Um, and and if this is, you know, sort of paradigm shifts um, from one set of problems to another set of problems, um, I, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing how that, how that very kind of closed loop um, can can permit us to also see um, the agency of the one outside of the loop actually moving those inside of the loop in genuinely positive directions instead of just chasing their tails in different ways. Well, uh, first of all, Lindbeck says m multiple times he he's not doing theology here. This is a non this is a non theological examination, so there would not be a place for that in this book. That's fair. But the alternative to that seems to me to be a kind of narrow parochial, parochialism where you say, yeah, the spirit is moving the church in good directions, which is my denomination, right? So I, I belong mm -hmm. to a more liberal Presbyterian denomination than you do. 
two ways, I won't say the two ways, but two ways to think about that is uh, I, I find the problems in your denomination to be less serious than the problems in my denomination, and you feel the opposite way. Uh, but there are problems with both. I think that's one way. And another way is to say, well, you uh, you hippies uh, you hippies let women be married, and so you fell away from the truth of the Bible. So women be married, women be ordained. So so you fell away from the Bible, and we're we're leaving to start a better church. Or uh, you know, you fundamentalists don't understand that things change, and so. Uh, don't let the door hit you on your way out. And, and, and you know, I, I guess I'm leaning back on paradigms again because I would say the problems with the paradigm theory seem less severe to me than the problems uh, with the other way of doing it. Hmm. I, I understand the way that Limbeck's notion of paradigms helps us talk about the ways that we are different um, in ways that permit more fruitful human dialogue which I th which which I th which which I commend and I th and I think that's I mean that's what I hear you commending that this is a better way to do it um, but it, it also feels like scripture, and creed are leading me to affirm things that are stronger than what that permits. But right, I think right, right. But but also, scripture and creed, the same scripture and creed, are leading people to affirm Catholicism. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You're working with the same materials and interpreting them differently. Mm -hmm. So I I I, I think I think that actually supports Lindbeck's point more than it detracts from it. Mm -hmm. And if I could just add one point, I mean, it also is the case that within that Christian tradition, that divine initiative is part of the narrative doctrine with which these traditions are working, right? Right. So, I mean, you know, a, a process theologian is going to narrate divine initiative differently from a strong reformed thinker. Uh, but both of them are going to take that as a datum that they are working with a story in which God, by some means, approaches humanity uh, in order to save humanity. Right. Well, and uh, I, I agree too, Michael. You were right to to bring up again that Lindbeck is is explicitly trying to pitch this as a non-religious way of talking about religion, and it's um, it is a little unfair of me to kind of flag it down for not doing a thing that it was claiming not to do but i mean i think i think the question you're asking is a meaningful one and it would it would just require a different book and i mean you and i could fight it out here <laughs> you know but i i certainly I, I certainly don't think it would be fair to fault lindbeck which i know you're not no no it's 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 just you know we're talking about how well does the model explain and and in this particular case how well does this model help explain close read the particularities of the tradition I know best and that's a place where I feel like it squeaks right I gotcha well guys uh, I'm gonna take a look at the clock and say it's probably about time to head for the door so I want to go around the horn 
this is a dense little book as I'm remembering. It's been a few years since I've read it last. And my questions have kept at the level of broad outlines. So as we head for the door, uh, what passage or question or concern would you want to discuss if we had another half hour that we don't have? David, you go first. Just very quickly, on page uh, 34, he, he talks about a religion one might say, and this is his quote, is that ultimate dimension of culture because it has to do with whatever is taken as most important, which gives shape and intensity to the experiential matrix from which significant cultural achievements flow. All right, complicated sentence, but when I read it, I sat back for a second and then I wrote in the margin, can we reverse engineer a culture from its achievements to its functional religion. Um, that, that I think would be interesting because if, if this religion, as he says, is this ultimate dimension of culture that gives shape and intensity to its experiential matrix from which its cultural achievements flow, then wouldn't it be interesting to take particular cultures, look at their achievements, and then sort of trace it back? And imagine sometimes you will find um, an explicit religious tradition, but sometimes you might not. Um, but I, I'm, I'm wondering what it would look like to reverse engineer that. I just think it's a, an interesting thought experiment. Michael, what do you got? I'm very interested in the role of truth claims here because that's the side I find more compelling. If religion is a language or a culture, is it just a language or a culture? When the Apostles' Creed says that Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, is it making a statement about something outside the community and tradition that formulated that statement? Mm -hmm. and, I, and I'm so tempted to answer these questions, but that's not, what I, that, that's not why I framed it here at the end. Uh, so, for now, I'm going to say, listeners, that the book is The Nature of Doctrine by George Lindbeck. Uh, you know, you can pick it up, you know, at online booksellers of various sorts. Uh, but, you know, uh, it's kind of a moot question. But, uh, David, what are we talking about next week? <laughs> well, the, the next two chapters, and um, because within our closed system of culture, uh, we call those the numbers three and four. That's the chapters we'll be looking at. Nice. In the meantime, listeners, you can find us at christianhumanist.org. You can go to our Facebook page. You can and you should, of course, leave us reviews on iTunes. That's where a lot of people get their podcasts. And we'd always like to welcome more listeners into the fold. Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor, I could I couldn't think of that phrase, David, is Ellen Peterson. <laughs> and I am Nathan Gilmore in behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubb saying... Let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger. <laughs>